Chapter Nineteen of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Nineteen. Zenobia's Drawing Room. The remainder of the day, so far as I was concerned, was spent in meditating on these recent incidents. I contrived and alternately rejected innumerable methods of accounting for the presence of Zenobia and Priscilla, and the connection of Westervelt with both. It must be owned, too, that I had a keen, revengeful sense of the insult inflicted by Zenobia's scornful recognition, and more particularly by her letting down the curtain, as if such were the proper barrier to be interposed between a character like hers and a perceptive faculty like mine. For was mine a mere vulgar curiosity? Zenobia should have known me better than to suppose it. She should have been able to appreciate that quality of the intellect and the heart which impelled me, often against my own will and to the detriment of my own comfort, to live in other lives, and to endeavor, by generous sympathies, by delicate intuitions, by taking note of things too slight for record, and by bringing my human spirit into manifold accordance with the companions whom God assigned me, to learn the secret which was hidden even from themselves. Of all possible observers, methought a woman like Zenobia and a man like Hollingsworth should have selected me. And now, when the event has long been passed, I retain the same opinion of my fitness for the office. True, I might have condemned them. Had I been judge as well as witness, my sentence might have been stern as that of destiny itself. But still, no trait of original nobility of character, no struggle against temptation, no iron necessity of will on the one hand, nor extenuating circumstance to be derived from passion and despair on the other, no remorse that might coexist with error, even if powerless to prevent it, no proud repentance that should claim retribution as a meed, would go unappreciated. True, again, I might give my full assent to the punishment which was sure to follow, but it would be given mournfully and with undiminished love, and after all was finished I would come as if to gather up the white ashes of those who had perished at the stake, and to tell the world, the wrong being now atoned for, how much had perished there which it had never yet known how to praise." I sat in my rocking-chair, too far withdrawn from the window, to expose myself to another rebuke like that already inflicted. My eyes still wandered towards the opposite house, but without effecting any new discoveries. Late in the afternoon, the weathercock on the church spire indicated a change of wind. The sun shone dimly out, as if the golden wine of its beams were mingled half and half with water. Nevertheless, they kindled up the whole range of edifices, threw a glow over the windows, glistened on the wet roofs, and slowly withdrawing upward, perched upon the chimney-tops. Thence they took a higher flight, and lingered an instant on the tip of the spire, making it the final point of more cheerful light in the whole sombre scene. The next moment it was all gone. The twilight fell into the area like a shower of dusky snow, and before it was quite dark the gong of the hotel summoned me to tea. 
When I returned to my chamber, the glow of an astral lamp was penetrating mistily through the white curtain of Zenobia's drawing-room. The shadow of a passing figure was now and then cast upon this medium, but with too vague an outline for even my adventurous conjectures to read the hieroglyphic that it presented. All at once it occurred to me how very absurd was my behavior in thus tormenting myself with crazy hypotheses as to what was going on within that drawing-room, when it was at my option to be personally present there. My relations with Zenobia, as yet unchanged, as a familiar friend and associated in the same lifelong enterprise, gave me the right, and made it no more than kindly courtesy demanded, to call on her. Nothing except our habitual independence of conventional rules at Blythedale could have kept me from sooner recognizing this duty. At all events it should now be performed." In compliance with this sudden impulse, I soon found myself actually within the house, the rear of which for two days past I had been so sedulously watching. A servant took my card, and immediately returning ushered me upstairs. On the way I heard a rich and, as it were, triumphant burst of music from a piano, in which I felt Zenobia's character, although heretofore I had known nothing of her skill upon the instrument. Two or three canary-birds, excited by this gush of sound, sang piercingly, and did their utmost to produce a kindred melody. A bright illumination streamed through the door of the front drawing-room, and I had barely stepped across the threshold before Zenobia came forward to meet me, laughing and with an extended hand. "'Ah, Mr. Coverdale,' said she, still smiling, but, as I thought, with a good deal of scornful anger underneath. It has gratified me to see the interest which you continue to take in my affairs. I have long recognized you as a sort of transcendental Yankee, with all the native propensity of your countrymen to investigate matters that come within their range, but rendered almost poetical in your case by the refined methods which you adopt for its gratification. After all, it was an unjustifiable stroke on my part, was it not, to let down the window-curtain. I cannot call it a very wise one, returned I, with a secret bitterness, which no doubt Zenobia appreciated. It is really impossible to hide anything in this world, to say nothing of the next. All that we ought to ask, therefore, is that the witnesses of our conduct and the speculators on our motives should be capable of taking the highest view which the circumstances of the case may admit." So much being secured, I, for one, would be most happy in feeling myself followed everywhere by an indefatigable human sympathy. "'We must trust for intelligent sympathy to our guardian angels, if any there be,' said Zenobia. "'As long as the only spectator of my poor tragedy is a young man at the window of his hotel, I must still claim the liberty to drop the curtain.' While this passed, as Zenobia's hand was extended, I had applied the very slightest touch of my fingers to her own. In spite of an external freedom, her manner made me sensible that we stood upon no real terms of confidence. The thought came sadly across me, how great was the contrast betwixt this interview and our first meeting. Then, in the warm light of the country fireside, Zenobia had greeted me cheerily and hopefully, with a full sisterly grasp of the hand, 
conveying as much kindness in it as other women could have evinced by the pressure of both arms around my neck, or by yielding a cheek to the brotherly salute. The difference was as complete as between her appearance at that time, so simply attired and with only the one superb flower in her hair, and now, when her beauty was set off by all that dress and ornament could do for it. And they did much." not indeed that they created or added anything to what nature had lavishly done for zenobia but those costly robes which she had on those flaming jewels on her neck served as lamps to display the personal advantages which required nothing less than such an illumination to be fully seen even her characteristic flower though it seemed to be still there had undergone a cold and bright transfiguration it was a flower exquisitely imitated in jeweller's work, and imparting the last touch that transformed Zenobia into a work of art. I scarcely feel, I could not forbear saying, as if we had ever met before. How many years ago it seems since we last sat beneath Eliot's pulpit, with Hollingsworth extended on the fallen leaves, and Priscilla at his feet. Can it be, Zenobia, that you ever really numbered yourself with our little band of earnest, thoughtful, philanthropic laborers? Those ideas have their time and place, she answered coldly, but I fancy it must be a very circumscribed mind that can find room for no other. Her manner bewildered me. Literally, moreover, I was dazzled by the brilliancy of the room. A chandelier hung down in the centre, glowing with I know not how many lights. There were separate lamps also on two or three tables and on marble brackets, adding their white radiance to that of the chandelier. The furniture was exceedingly rich. Fresh from our old farmhouse with its homely board and benches in the dining-room, and a few wicker chairs in the best parlour, it struck me that here was the fulfilment of every fantasy of an imagination revelling in various methods of costly self-indulgence and splendid ease. Pictures, marbles, vases, in brief, more shapes of luxury than there could be any object in enumerating except for an auctioneer's advertisement and the whole repeated and doubled by the reflection of a great mirror which showed me Zenobia's proud figure likewise and my own. It cost me, I acknowledge, a bitter sense of shame to perceive in myself a positive effort to bear up against the effect which Zenobia sought to impose on me. I reasoned against her in my secret mind, and strove so to keep my footing." in the gorgeousness with which she had surrounded herself, in the redundance of personal ornament, which the largeness of her physical nature and the rich type of her beauty caused to seem so suitable, I malevolently beheld the true character of the woman, passionate, luxurious, lacking simplicity, not deeply refined, incapable of pure and perfect taste." But the next instant she was too powerful for all my opposing struggles. I saw how fit it was that she should make herself as gorgeous as she pleased, and should do a thousand things that would have been ridiculous in the poor, thin, weakly characters of other women. To this day, however, I hardly know whether I then beheld Zenobia in her truest attitude, or whether that were the truer one in which she had presented herself at Blythedale. 
In both there was something like the illusion which a great actress flings around her. "'Have you given up Blithedale forever?' I inquired. "'Why should you think so?' asked she. "'I cannot tell,' answered I, "'except that it appears all like a dream that we were ever there together.' "'It is not so to me,' said Zenobia. "'I should think it a poor and meagre nature "'that is capable of but one set of forms, "'and must convert all the past into a dream "'merely because the present happens to be unlike it. "'Why should we be content with our homely life "'of a few months past "'to the exclusion of all other modes? "'It was good, but there are other lives as good or better.' not you will understand that i condemn those who give themselves up to it more entirely than i for myself should deem it wise to do it irritated me this self-complacent condescending qualified approval and criticism of a system to which many individuals perhaps as highly endowed as our gorgeous zenobia had contributed their all of earthly endeavour and their loftiest aspirations I determined to make proof if there were any spell that would exorcise her out of the part which she seemed to be acting. She should be compelled to give me a glimpse of something true, some nature, some passion, no matter whether right or wrong, provided it were real. Your allusion to that class of circumscribed characters who can live only in one mode of life, remarked I coolly, reminds me of our poor friend Hollingsworth. "'Perhaps he was in your thoughts when you spoke thus. "'Poor fellow! "'It is a pity that, by the fault of a narrow education, "'he should have so completely immolated himself to that one idea of his, "'especially as the slightest modicum of common sense "'would teach him its utter impracticability. "'Now that I have returned into the world "'and can look at his project from a distance, "'it requires quite all my real regard "'for this respectable and well-intentioned man "'to prevent me from laughing at him, "'as I find society at large does.' "'Zenobia's eyes darted lightning, "'her cheeks flushed, "'the vividness of her expression "'was like the effect of a powerful light "'flaming up suddenly within her.' my experiment had fully succeeded. She had shown me the true flesh and blood of her heart by thus involuntarily resenting my slight, pitying, half-kind, half-scornful mention of the man who was all in all with her. She herself probably felt this, for it was hardly a moment before she tranquilized her uneven breath and seemed as proud and self-possessed as ever." "'I rather imagine,' said she quietly, "'that your appreciation falls short of Mr. Hollingsworth's just claims. "'Blind enthusiasm, absorption in one idea, I grant, "'is generally ridiculous and must be fatal to the respectability of an ordinary man. "'It requires a very high and powerful character to make it otherwise.' But a great man, as perhaps you do not know, attains his normal condition only through the inspiration of one great idea. As a friend of Mr. Hollingsworth, and at the same time a calm observer, I must tell you that he seems to me such a man. But you are very pardonable for fancying him ridiculous. Doubtless he is so, to you. There can be no truer test of the noble and heroic in any individual than the degree in which he possesses the faculty of distinguishing heroism from absurdity. 
I dared make no retort to Zenobia's concluding apothem. In truth I admired her fidelity. It gave me a new sense of Hollingsworth's native power to discover that his influence was no less potent with this beautiful woman here in the midst of artificial life than it had been at the foot of the grey rock and among the wild birch trees of the woodpath when she so passionately pressed his hand against her heart the great rude shaggy swarthy man and zenobia loved him did you bring priscilla with you i resumed do you know i have sometimes fancied it not quite safe considering the susceptibility of her temperament that she should be so constantly within the sphere of a man like hollingsworth such tender and delicate natures among your sex have often i believe a very adequate appreciation of the heroic element in men but then again i should suppose them as likely as any other women to make a reciprocal impression hollingsworth could hardly give his affections to a person capable of taking an independent stand but only to one whom he might absorb into himself he has certainly shown great tenderness for priscilla zenobia had turned aside but i caught the reflection of her face in the mirror and saw that it was very pale as pale in her rich attire as if a shroud were round her priscilla is here said she her voice a little lower than usual have you not learnt as much from your chamber window would you like to see her she made a step or two into the back drawing-room and called priscilla dear priscilla End of chapter 19